True Crime Fix is a podcast with adult themes and graphic descriptions of crime which may not be considered suitable for all ages. Please use your discretion when listening. All research has been conducted using material in the public domain and some opinions may not be that of the author or the host. Please remember that all victims are someone's loved one and all episodes are recorded in the utmost respect of their memory. You're listening to the True Crime Base Podcast with your host, Steve. Hi everyone, before we start this week's episode, I just want to say that I am aware that this is being released on the 11th of September. Obviously the 11th of September is synonymous with one of the most infamous attacks that ever happened. Therefore I do understand that some of my American listeners may find it slightly difficult to listen to today's episode. I just wanted to say that my thoughts go out to anybody who was affected on that day 19 years ago. Hello again everyone and welcome to the fourth episode of season four and episode 44 of the True Crime Fix podcast. Wow, that's an awful lot of fours. If you've enjoyed the show so far, then please make sure that you've subscribed on your chosen podcast directory and all the new episodes will automatically download for you upon release. I would also like to take this opportunity to welcome Olivia into the True Crime Fix Patreon family. If you would like to join Olivia, please go over to www.patreon.com forward slash true crime fix podcast any support is really appreciated also just a heads up this is the fourth episode of a multi-parter so if you've not heard part one two or three yet please press pause here and go back and track down episode 41 42 or 43 respectively and please i strongly advise this before you listen to today's show as there's a lot of information which, if you've not heard the previous episodes, will make no sense or you will miss the significance. A brief recap as to where we are. Three men, 30-year-old Mohammed Sadiq Khan, 22-year-old Shazad Tanweer and 18-year-old Hasib Hussain have travelled from Leeds in Yorkshire to Luton in Bedfordshire. There they have picked up a fourth man, Jermaine Lindsay. They have travelled on the Thameslink service from Luton into Kings Cross St Pancras, where they have said their goodbyes and went their separate ways. The first part focused solely on the incident between Liverpool Street and all gate stations. The second part on the explosion at Edgware Road and Russell Square. The third part on the bus at Tavistock Square and the initial response following the disaster. We have also heard the obituaries of all of the 52 victims. Today we will be focusing on how the services learn about the attackers as well as going into who they are. Just a reminder, the majority of this is based on the testimony of those that were there so therefore some of the descriptions are extremely graphic. 
So without further ado, this is your True Crime Fix. I'm your host Steve, and this case has been dedicated to the memory of all of those that lost their lives during the events that unfolded on the 7th of July 2005. So at the end of the last episode, I introduced the review of the intelligence report on the London attacks, a document which was presented in front of Parliament in May 2009, and I teased that the security services knew about two of the attackers before. So before I go into that, I have to explain to you Operation Crevice. In early 2003, the MI5 service obtained intelligence indicating that an individual called Mohammed Kayoum Khan, who was from Luton, was the leader of an Al-Qaeda facilitation network in the UK. The term Al-Qaeda facilitation network is used by the MI5 to refer to groups of extremists who support the Al-Qaeda cause and who are involved in providing financial and logistical support rather than being directly involved in the planning of attacks on targets. As a result of this intelligence, the MI5 made Mohammed Kayoum Khan a desirable target and began an investigation into his facilitation network. This operation was given the codename Crevice. The investigation indicated that there was a further key member of the network based in the UK and he was identified in late January 2004 as Omar Kuyam. He appeared to be acting as a courier for the network, his role being exactly that, delivering messages through packages. Given his role as a courier, the MI5 decided to put him under limited surveillance as part of their operation to find out more about the network. However, in early February 2004, the MI5 received intelligence which changed things dramatically. After a period of surveillance, it was clear that the MI5 were no longer looking at a facilitation network providing financial support to Al-Qaeda overseas, but had instead found a bomb plot probably aimed at the UK. At this point, Kuyam became the MI5's top target and Operation Crevice became their top priority. As a result, the focus was now not only on preventing the plot from succeeding, but also on gathering information by using methods such as eavesdropping and surveillance, so that they would have evidence to be used in court if the men were brought to trial. At this time, an executive liaison group, or an ELG, was formed to manage the operation. An ELG provides a secure forum in which the MI5 and the police work closely together. The group allows the MI5 to safely share secret, sensitive and often raw intelligence with the police so that a collaborative decision can be made about how to best gather evidence and prosecute suspects in court. Each organisation works in partnership throughout the investigation 
but the MI5 retained the lead for collecting, assessing and exploiting the intelligence gained. The police take the lead responsibility for gathering evidence, obtaining arrests and preventing risks to the public. All of the people that Kayam had met and spoken to were assessed to see if they were involved in the plan to attack the UK. Most were not, however, some were thought to be involved in criminal activity, others were thought to be of the facilitation part of crevice. A few, though, were actively involved in a fertiliser bomb plot. As public safety was their top priority, the MI5 and the police concentrated on those who were actually talking about a terrorist attack. Operation Crevice was the largest operation the MI5 and the police had ever undertaken. It spanned across a variety of countries all over the world. In terms of resources deployed by the MI5 during the operation, 30 addresses were searched after warrants had been obtained. 45,000 man-hours were devoted to the monitoring, intercepting and transcription of chatter. A quick side note for a definition. Chatter is an intelligence term referring to the volume of intercepted communications. Intelligence officials, not having better metrics, monitor the volume of communication to or from suspected parties to determine whether there is cause for alarm. The MI5 also conducted 20 CCTV operations and 34,000 man-hours of surveillance of suspects. On the 20th of February 2004, however, the investigation took another unexpected turn. An electronics expert arrived from Canada to meet Kayam. Surveillance, which was being covertly conducted, revealed that he was advising Kayam and his associates on the construction and operation of remote detonation devices. This confirmed to the MI5 that Kayam was actively planning an attack. Also on the 20th of February, but in a separate incident, the police anti-terrorism hotline received a telephone call from a member of staff at a storage depot. The tip-off said that someone had been storing a 600 kilogram bag of fertiliser since the 11th of November 2003 and they felt it was suspicious. That is 1,323 pounds of fertiliser. I'd always wondered this, so I thought I'd share what I learnt with you. Experts say that it's actually quite difficult to make a bomb out of fertiliser because of the nature of the chemistry of the explosion. Ammonium nitrate is the fertiliser compound that can be used in explosives. The ammonium nitrate is like the engine behind the explosion, but the engine needs a fuel. In fact, bombs need two components beside the fertiliser, a detonator and a fuel. The fertiliser must be mixed with a fuel in an exact ratio 
and the detonator must be able to generate sufficient energy. The first thing that happens during a fertiliser bomb blast is the explosion of the detonator. It contains a small amount of explosive compound in it and when it discharges it creates what experts call a detonation wave. This detonation wave radiates outwards from the detonator at a speed of about 2 to 3 miles per second through the mixture of ammonium nitrate and fuel. The energy of the detonation wave causes the ammonium nitrate in the fertilizer to vaporize. The solid fertilizer becomes a gas in an instant. The ammonium and nitrate molecules break down and a large amount of oxygen gas is suddenly formed. The gas is released from the decomposing fertilizer in what drives the explosion. The rapid release of oxygen along with the energy from the detonation wave ignites the fuel. When the liquid fuel ignites it rapidly combusts and even more gas is released. All that gas causes pressure waves. The pressure waves travel at the speed of sound at about 1,100 feet or 343 meters per second and can damage nearby structures or even kill bystanders. It sounds truly horrific. The police visited the storage unit later that day and obtained details of the fertilizer and the rental agreement. What they found confirmed the intelligence that they had previously received and indicated that the fertiliser was intended for use in a bomb attack. This showed the MI5 that Kayam had not only the intention to launch an attack, he now also had the capability. On the 22nd of February 2004, through listening devices which had been planted, Kayam was heard considering a number of possible targets which would either cause mass casualties or mass disruption. The Blue Water Shopping Centre in Dartford, Kent was one of the perceived targets, a centre which contained 330 stores, employed 7,000 staff and had over 27 million visitors a year. The second was the Ministry of Sound Nightclub, a venue established in 1991 in an elephant and castle disused bus garage which turned into one of London's biggest nightclubs and attracts around 300,000 clubbers a year. The other plans were to cause mass disruption to services like gas supplies. This indicated to the MI5 that the plot was gathering pace and in the space of just three weeks the MI5 had gone from a relatively routine investigation of a facilitation network to a top-level operation to prevent a large-scale bomb attack in the UK. With every development, the MI5 and the police had to decide whether to continue to gather more information and intelligence or whether to make arrests. More evidence would have helped secure convictions, but more intelligence might have led the MI5 to other plots and other networks. This dilemma came to a head 
in March 2004. It appeared from eavesdropping that Kayam was becoming what the report described as a little bit jumpy. He and the other crevice plotters were heard talking about leaving the country. The MI5 thought this might be an escape plan for after an attack and therefore that an attack must be imminent. The MI5 and the police decided they could not take the risk that an attack might be launched so between the 29th of March and the 1st of April 2004 the core crevice suspects including Kayam were arrested. Eight people were eventually arrested on suspicion of involvement in a fertiliser bomb plot. Five of the men were found guilty of conspiracy to cause explosions, with two also convicted of possessing articles for the purposes of terrorism. Omar Khayyam, Wahid Mahmood and Anthony Garcia were each given indeterminate life sentences with a 20-year minimum term. Once this immediate threat to life had been dealt with, the MI5 again returned to follow up on the 4,000 contacts they had come across during Operation Crevice. The number and scale of the operations throughout 2004 and 2005 meant that the MI5 were always playing catch-up. Due to the information they were discovering, they were constantly moving resources from one plot to the next, never truly knowing what they were chasing. With each new plot, they were unearthing more and more people of interest on the periphery that they would need to return to and investigate when they had the time. Six further attempted attacks were revealed to be in the advanced planning stage. It was at this point that both Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer were identified as having been in contact with the men in Operation Crevice. Immediately after the attacks on the 7th of July 2005, the MI5, MI6, GCHQ and the police tried to work out who the bombers were. Over the following days, the four bombers were formally identified. But how was this done? Ultimately, a lot of the clues came from the initial crime scene technicians at each of the sites. Haseeb Hussain had been reported to the police as a missing person by his family at 10.19pm on the day of the attacks. They told the police that he had travelled down to London with two friends on the morning of the 7th. During the initial search of both the scene at Allgate and Edgware Road, personal belongings including membership cards and bank cards bearing the names Mr Sadiq Khan and Mr S Tanweer were documented at around 11.40pm. The following day, the gym membership card belonging to Tanweer had been traced, showing that it was registered to his home address in Colwyn Road in Leeds. The two cards, a Halifax current account card and an HSBC credit card, were traced to Mohammed Sadiq Khan's home address 
of Gregory Street in Batley. The following morning, whilst running name checks on all of the items found at the scenes through the intelligence databases, they found that the name Muhammad Sadiq Khan had appeared during Operation Crevice. On the 10th of July, despite the attacks, thousands of people, including a great number of war veterans, turned out and gathered in the Mall for Commemoration Day, marking 60 years since the end of World War II. This show of solidarity by Londoners showing that they were not scared. Meanwhile, a driving licence and other identification documents in the name of Hasib Hussain were found at Tavistock Square. This information was then linked to the missing persons report, which they had taken on the day of the bombings. Also on that day, the post-mortems had began on the people who had died at the scenes. The pathologist, who reported that the bodies who were later identified as Hussein, Khan and Lindsay, were showing signs of being in possession of or in the close proximity to the bombs at the time of the explosion. By the 11th of July, the police had been in contact with the family of Hussein, who had been reported missing. Hussein's family told the police that he had travelled down to London on the 6th of July with a number of friends, including Mohammed Sadiq Khan and Shazad Tanweer. The security services also received intel that Khan had another address in Lee's Holm, in the town of Dewsbury. Khan, Tanweer and Hussain were now the key suspects in the bombing and the police applied for warrants to search all of the associated addresses and vehicles connected to the three. The police were still trawling through hours of CCTV and, as you have heard throughout the previous three parts, all three of the perpetrators were very noticeable throughout the day. From the police's perspective, they started learning about their movements at 1pm on the 12th of July when Khan, Tanweer and Hussain were identified from footage at King's Cross Station. Jermaine Lindsay never became a suspect until the CCTV footage from Luton Railway Station was reviewed. On the 13th of July, DNA analysis of the bodies from Allgate confirmed that Tanweer had died at Allgate. It was also on the 13th that Lindsay was reported missing by his wife, Samantha Luthwaite, six days after the initial attacks but more on that a bit later. On the 15th of July, DNA was used to confirm Hussain's identity at Tavistock Square. On the 16th of July, DNA was used to confirm Lindsay's and Khan's identities from Russell Square and Edgware Road, respectively. So how were any of the perpetrators of the London attacks known to the security services? On the 2nd of February 2004, whilst conducting surveillance on Omar Khayyam, he met in Crawley, West Sussex, with three men driving a Honda Civic. Khayyam, his associate and the three men in the Civic swapped cars 
and Kayam drove off with the three men staying put with Kayam's car. A short while later, Kayam arrived back at the car park and returned to his vehicle with the three men getting back in their car. The police surveillance team then followed the Honda to try and obtain some further information on these unidentified males in case at a later date they were thought to be of interest and needed to be followed up on. At Toddington service station on the M1 in Bedfordshire, the MI5 surveillance team secretly photographed the three before the Honda continued its journey back to Yorkshire. On the 28th of February 2004, the three unidentified men who had been seen meeting Kayam on the 2nd of February were again seen meeting him in a car park in Crawley at 8.56. Just to put a bit of context into this suspicion, the men who were in the green Honda had made a 236-mile trip for the meeting. From there, they made a series of visits to builders' merchants before travelling 50 miles to a mosque in Slough, Berkshire. After a brief stop, they then travelled and stopped for approximately 30 minutes at Kayam's address in Hencroft Street, also in Slough. They then travelled to Wellingborough, near Northampton, via Toddington service station, where they met Mohammed Koyem Khan at 5.30pm, before returning to Slough to drop off Omar Khayyam and his associate Wahid Mahmood at 11.35pm. The MI5 surveillance team then stayed with Khayyam, but the Metropolitan Police Service surveillance team followed the remaining unidentified men back to West Yorkshire with the aim of learning more about them should it be assessed that these men were suspicious and needed following up later. They stopped again at Toddington service station and then the following places. Castle Donington service station near Derby, Tempest Road in Leeds, outside a church in Lodge Lane, Leeds, and then finally they parked in Pickles Field in Batley, which is also near Leeds. The MI5 checked the details of the Honda Civic again, and this time it was found to be registered to a Sadiq Khan. The three men were later identified as Wahid Ali, Shazad Tanweer and Mohammed Sadiq Khan. So what do we know about the four men's upbringing? It's fair to say from the get-go that it's very hard to explain specifically where their lives took a change to the extent that they felt that they had to do what they did but this might give us a better understanding. The eldest of the group was Mohammed Sadiq Khan. Mohammed Sadiq Khan was born on the 20th of October 1974 in Leeds to Tika Khan and Mamida Begum, who were both originally from Pakistan. He was the youngest of six children who grew up in Beeston, where he attended the Matthew Murray High School, which is now known as South Leeds High School. Beeston is a suburb of Leeds 
located on a hill about two miles south of the city centre. A point of note from his early childhood that Khan's friends as he grew up were mainly white British kids and they subsequently described how he considered himself to be Western. When he was younger, he returned from a trip to America, besotted by all things American. From then on, he was more commonly known by an anglicised version of his name, Sid. Robert Cardis remembered Khan as a young teenager in the late 1980s. Sid wasn't in your face or outspoken, but he wasn't completely straight-laced either. He was friends with the in-crowd. He had white mates as well as Asian, and he would quite often be around the back of the gym at break time smoking a cigarette with the rest of us. He didn't have any girlfriends that I knew of, but he'd talk about girls. He was friendly. Eventually, though, it was not actually the teachings of the Quran that first led Muhammad Sadiq Khan down the path to his apparent jihad, but crack cocaine. Again, though, not crack cocaine that he injected into his veins, but crack cocaine that he tried to stop others from using. In the late 1980s, drug dealers moved in to Beeston. According to a resident who lived in the area at the time, the dealers were mainly young Asian men with flash cars, loud hip-hop blaring from their stereos and over-exaggerated jewellery, who set up shop in crack houses and in the local park. The long-time residents of the area had no idea how to deal with them. Then, the Moolah crew showed up. The Moolah boys, as they sometimes called themselves, were a group of second-generation young men, British-born but of Pakistani origin, who decided to clean up their neighbourhood. One of their tactics was to kidnap young drug addicts and, with the consent of their families, give them cold turkey treatment in a flat near the Wahhabi-inclined mosque on Stratford Street. Wahhabism is an austere form of Islam that insists on the literal interpretation of the Quran. Strict Wahhabis believed that all of those who did not practice their form of Islam are heathens and enemies. Muhammad Sadiq Khan was a Mullah boy. The Mullah crew did not simply sweep the dealers off of its turf, they were also contemptuous about the ways of the older generation. They saw themselves as Muslims, but rejected most of the traditions of Islam. Despite their campaign against the dealers, the boys were happy to smoke dope and drink vodka, and often used a local massage parlour which moonlighted as a brothel. But the tradition that most grated with the youth was that of arranged marriages. The Mullah crew encouraged love matches, though only between Muslims, and even started conducting marriages from the premises of Ikra, a local Islamic bookshop which soon became a kind of dropping centre for the boys. Ikra being the literal Arabic translation of read, 
but it is also a girl's name which is taken from the Quran. The Mulakru could have been perceived as westernised Pakistani youths trying to steer away from the strict traditions of their ancestors, but there was something more sinister beneath the surface. One of the Mullah boys' victims was 16-year-old Tyrone Clark from Beeston. In April 2004, he happened to be walking with his friend Raphael Lovick through Brett Gardens, a local park that the boys had decided was their territory. A pack of around 20 males, many of them wearing balakalavas, chased them. The two friends got separated and the mob set upon Tyrone with cricket bats, scaffolding poles and planks of wood. He was then stabbed three times. By the time the mob had finished, his mother told reporters all that was left of him was a bloody pulp. A year later, four men, Islam Ramin, Anjum Amin, Kamir Akram and Leakat Ali, received sentences of between 9 and 12 years imprisonment for the murder. Khan's brother, Gultasab, told the BBC that the first time he noticed his brother had become Wahhabi was when he started praying differently, as apparently Wahhabis have additional gestures while praying. Khan had attended Friday prayers from a young age, and the three brothers, Hanif, Gultasab and Khan, would fast together during Ramadan. But it was during one particular Ramadan, when Khan was in his late teens, that he began to take a greater interest in religion. Gultasab stated that his brother had found the traditional community-run mosque on Hardy Street had nothing to offer him. In his opinion, the people who ran the mosque had no idea how to connect to the second generation. They spoke and wrote in Urdu, and the only time they interacted with the younger Muslims was when they taught them to recite the Quran off by heart in Arabic. The Wahhabis did things differently. They delivered sermons and printed publications in English. Khan's Urdu was poor, so the only things in Islam that he could read were Wahhabi-approved publications. Gultasab said that Khan's progression to Wahhabism was reinforced by the fact that some of his friends and future Mullah boys were converting too. A second source of friction between Khan and his family was his determination to marry for love. During the years of his conversion to Wahhabism, Khan fell in love with his future wife, Hasina Patel. The pair met at Leeds Metropolitan University in 1997, whilst Khan was taking a one-year course to convert a business diploma from a local college into a degree, whilst Hasina was studying a three-year sociology degree. Her family was from India, and his was from Pakistan, meaning that there was already tensions. I cannot go into the tensions in the relationship between the two countries, otherwise we'll still be here in four hours, but it is likely that his family would not have approved. In 1999, 
it seems that Khan began to consider the step from Wahhabi fundamentalism to a form of jihadism actively committed to violence. In the summer of 2001, Khan had been working with Omar Sharif and Asif Hanif to recruit youngsters for training in Afghanistan. Sharif and Hanif themselves were the perpetrators of the Mike's Place bombing in Tel Aviv on the 30th of April 2003, killing three and injuring 50. Khan's later involvement with the individuals identified in Operation Crevice have already been described in great detail, but it's still unclear at what point the attack was orchestrated. Mohammed Sadiq Khan reportedly, though, postponed the event from the 6th of July 2005 because he had to take his pregnant wife to the hospital. The next part is going to be a clip of Mohammed Sadiq Khan talking to his baby in front of a camera saying goodbye. The child's face is blurred, but you can tell that they are young enough not to be talking or walking yet. I know I said I would try and keep my emotions out of this, but this person is saying goodbye to his baby, and yet he had no consideration for the fact that all of the people that he killed on the day would not be awarded the same courtesy. I've tried to enhance the audio as best I can, but I'm sure that you'll get the drift. Shazad Tanweer was born on the 15th of December 1982. He was born in St Luke's Maternity Hospital in Bradford to Parveen Akhtar and her husband Mohammed Mumzhaz Tanweer, who was originally from the Faisalabad region of Pakistan. He moved to Beeston with his parents, brother and two sisters when he was very young. Tamweer was a popular student at Wortley High School and also an outstanding sportsman. A report in the Washington Post states Tanweer's primary passion was playing cricket and that he rarely missed a Wednesday night match at the local park, but he was also into football and martial arts. Throughout his teenage years, he appeared to have a balanced life. At school, he was remembered for his calm, friendly, mature and modest nature, 
and was popular with his fellow students. The nickname his father gave him as a young child was Kaka, which meant little one, and as he grew up, this was adopted by his friends. Tanweer took care of his appearance, always being seen with a fashionable hairstyle and designer clothes. He went on to study sports science at Leeds Metropolitan University in 2001. He left university in 2003, two years into the course, before completing the follow-on Bachelor of Science course, but more on that in a minute. His father was a former Yorkshire police officer who owned several local businesses, including a chip shop which Tanweer often worked in during his university days, joking with customers as he served them. He was not from an impoverished background and he drove a red Mercedes which was a gift from his father. He appeared, to all intents and purposes, to be a normal teenager going into his adult life. He was described to have taken religion very seriously from an early age but showed no signs of what was to come. He is said to have become more religiously observant from around the age of 16 or 17. Then, from mid-2002, religion appeared to become the major focus of his life. As I previously mentioned, he left his university course early, only completing two of the three years. The reasons given were that firstly there was no longer a local authority grant available, meaning that he could no longer afford to stay on, but also he was losing interest. Thereafter, he appeared to devote the majority of his time to religious study and observance, including at a religious school in the neighbouring town of Dewsbury. He had received one caution for disorderly conduct in April 2004, but otherwise had not been in trouble with the police. But in November 2004, he left the job at the chip shop and remained unemployed and increasingly dependent on his family. His father was looking to set him up in business at this time, taking over one of the many takeaway restaurants that he had run. But it was in late November 2004 where things started to change for Tamweer. Tamweer travelled to Pakistan during that month on a Turkish Airlines flight TK-1056, arriving in Karachi, the capital. His travelling partner? Muhammad Sadiq Khan. But we will return to this a little bit later. Hasib Mir Hussain was born on the 16th of September 1986 in Leeds General Infirmary. He was the youngest of four children to Manazar and Mahmoud Hussain. Hussain lived in the Holbeck area of Leeds with his parents, older brother and sister-in-law. He attended Thomas Danby College where he gained an AVCE in business and was awaiting the results of the five MVQs he had taken at the time of the London bombings. Like Khan, he had previously attended Matthew Murray High School in Beeston from 1998 to 2003, during which time he had a good attendance record. Hussein had achieved GCSEs 
in English language, English literature, maths, science, Urdu, design technology, as well as a GMVQ in business studies. Unlike the other two, friends at school had noticed that there were seeds of hatred in him from an early age. One former school friend suggested that a stark racial divide at Matthew Murray School might have sown the seeds of hatred which were to flourish years later. The friend who did not want to be named said to the Daily Mail newspaper, It was always whites against Asians and there were so many fights. Hussein was really quiet and didn't get into any fights himself but he was in the thick of the gangs that did. Maybe that played a part in making him feel alienated from the country of his birth and Western society. He was really tall as well. He was more than six foot before he even hit 15, so he stood out a bit. Just a quick side note here. I've included this as it is relevant to his state of mind, but as the Daily Mail have called it an unnamed source, as British people are aware, Please caveat that piece of information. Another former classmate, Matthew Judge, recalled how, towards the end of his school days, Hussein underwent a dramatic change. He said, He liked playing cricket and hockey. Then one day, he came into the school and he had undergone a complete transformation almost overnight. He started wearing a toppy hat from the mosque grew a beard and wore robes. Before that, he was always in jeans. Hussein undertook a Hajj visit to Saudi Arabia with his family in early 2002. After this, he began wearing traditional clothing and a prayer cap and would wear white on Fridays. Sometime after this, it was noted that he had written Al-Qaeda No Limits on his religious education schoolbook. He was open about his support of Al-Qaeda in school and said that he regarded the 9-11 bombers as martyrs. He told his teacher on one occasion that he wanted to become a cleric when he left school. It is reported that he would regularly sit up until the early hours reading religious texts and praying. He was cautioned for shoplifting in Leeds Town Centre with another youth in 2004, but had not otherwise been in trouble with the police. The official report, which was put before Parliament, stated that there was a common denominator for all three men, Khan, Tamweer and Hussain, and that was their social life, which revolved around the mosques, youth clubs, gyms, and the Ikara Islamic bookshop in Beeston. There were a number of clubs and gyms all within a few hundred yards of each other in Beeston, and a room below one of those mosques was used as a youth club and gym until 2001. Khan gave talks there and worked out. The main youth club operated from a number of premises before being renamed and absorbed into the main community centre. Khan was on the management committee of the youth club until 2003, but was not formally employed there and did it on a voluntary basis after it moved under the main community centre umbrella. 
The club was focused on children between the ages of 13 and 19 who had fallen behind or been excluded from school, but it also functioned as a general social meeting place for the youths of the area. The club had a community centre, had a gym, computers and classes, lectures and discussion groups for general use. The local bookshop sold Islamic books, tapes and DVDs, and it was also used for IT lessons, lectures and discussion groups on Islam. There are three mosques in the immediate area. The group attended all of them at different times and were not particularly associated with one rather than the others. Therefore, no blame could be put on their place of worship. They also attended other mosques outside of the immediate area. Khan was well known in Beeston. He was described by many in the area as a mentor who young people naturally looked up to as a youth leader. Tamweer appeared to have got to know him well through one of the gyms and had become increasingly close to him in the period before the bombings. Hussein also became close to both men through his youth activity. Although it's heavily suggested in many of the sources that I read that Khan was using his position as a youth leader to recruit for extremist factions, there is no strict evidence to prove or deny this. Information about what went on in these places is mixed and incomplete to say the least. Much of it in fact was hearsay, with accounts from those with more direct knowledge giving conflicting information, making it difficult to be sure what the facts are. In the official report which was presented to the House of Commons in 2006, it stated, Some have said the clubs, gym and bookshop were well known locally as centres of extremism. For example, that one of the gyms was known as the Al-Qaeda gym because of who frequented it, and that the local bookshop was used to watch extremist DVDs and videos, access extremist websites, and for extremist lectures. Others, however, present a very different picture. There is very little evidence that Khan, Tanweer or Hussein were big internet users at home. Some who attended talks by Khan recalled that he focused on clean living, staying away from crime and drugs and the value of sport and outdoor activity. Others heard rumours that he held extreme views and some felt that Khan could preach aggressively. Some said extremist preachers had visited the bookshop and one of the mosques. Others said that none of the mosques were in any way extreme. It was, of course, similar to other previous investigations conducted by the security services. The normal activities of a mosque can be entirely proper, but with extremists who were unknown to the mosque's hierarchy operating within its congregation. One thing that is certain, though, was the trip to Pakistan. As I mentioned earlier, Khan and Tanweer arrived in Karachi in November 2004. The two stayed in Pakistan until February the 8th, before flying back to London together. 
investigators believed that Tanweer had met at least one senior militant, Osama Nazir, during a previous trip to Pakistan in 2003, prior to his Hajj pilgrimage. But they believed that both men met with a second militant, Zishan Siddiqui, who was associated with several radical groups. As more pieces of the puzzle were now falling into place, they could now link Khan to a 24-hour visit to Israel on the 19th of February 2003, leaving the next day. The Israeli daily newspaper Mariv said he was suspected of helping plot the suicide mission at Mike's Place Bar in Tel Aviv on the 30th of April, which I mentioned earlier, which had killed three Israelis. But the question is, why? If Mohammed Sadiq Khan was such a key player in two attacks, was only a few lines of intelligence held about him by the security services? That is something that unfortunately in all my research I have done, I cannot find an answer that satisfies me. As time went on, investigators were gradually piecing together a clearer picture of Tanweer's and Khan's movements in Pakistan. Pakistani intelligence officers believed that they had stayed in a hotel in Karachi's central Sadir area for a week before leaving for Lahore by train. There, they spent their time visiting different madrasas, which the intelligence services believed to be radicalised. A madrasa is basically a college for Islamic instruction and learning. The issue being, as explained earlier, it is the translation of the values and teachings that differ between different schools of thought. The Guardian newspaper reported in a story by Luke Harding and Rosie Cowan on the 19th of July 2005 that experts believed that only two Pakistani militant groups would have had the expertise and international resources to assist an elaborate suicide operation in Britain. The banned Sunni group Lashkari Taiba and the Jayashi Muhammad or the Army of Muhammad. As I've been doing with all of these episodes where there are complex areas to explain, I have posted reference documents on the Patreon page which is free to access for anyone listening. Tamweer is believed to have stayed at a madrasa run by Lashkari Taiba in Mudraik, 20 miles outside of Lahore. It is not possible to draw firm definitive conclusions from any of the information listed, but it seems likely that this is how things happened. Khan used the opportunities that his position in the community had granted him to identify candidates for indoctrination even if the indoctrination itself took place more privately to avoid detection. The frustrating aspect is that it is difficult to pinpoint where and when Khan's view on the world changed, but all of the official documents from the MI5 and other government departments list him as the ringleader for the London attacks. In the months before the bombings, Khan, Tanweer and Hussain were observed spending a lot of time together. 
Khan, however, was not believed to be the only leading figure in recruiting from this Leeds suburb. The security services have never publicly acknowledged the extent to which others may have been involved in indoctrinating the group, or their knowledge on what they were planning, or their involvement. Then again, I suppose that's why they are called the secret services. This brought all of the intelligence up to date with Operation Crevice. I'm just going to take a short pause here to let you digest what you have just learned before we get into the complex world of Jermaine Lindsay. Jermaine Morris Lindsay was born on the 23rd of September 1985 in Waterford, a suburb of the town of Portmore in Jamaica. His mother Miriam was 19 at the time, but his birth father played a very small role in his life from the day he was born. At the age of five months, Lindsay, his mother and her new partner moved to the United Kingdom and settled in the city of Huddersfield in Yorkshire. The man, who was now Lindsay's stepfather, was deemed to be very harsh on him as a young child and his mother called the relationship quits in 1990. Shortly after, Lindsay's mother started a new relationship with another man and despite the fact that Lindsay was a lot closer to him and gained two stepsisters, that relationship was over by the year 2000. He went to a local school, Rawthorpe Junior, a church junior school and then the Rawthorpe Secondary School. Lindsay was a bright child who was successful academically at school and good at sport. He was described as being artistic and musical. As a teenager, he became interested in martial arts and kickboxing, and like the other three, he was physically fit and worked out. In 2000, his mother Miriam converted to Islam, and acquaintances of the family believed that she encouraged her son to do the same. He changed his name to Jamal, Arabic for beauty, and that was what he was known by from that day forth. It was here that Lindsay met controversial Inam, Abdullah El Faisal, who was also Jamaican. El Faisal was convicted in 2003 for preaching hatred, urging his followers to murder Jews, Hindus, Christians and Americans. In an interview later with the Daily Telegraph, El Faisal claimed that the only contact that he had with Lindsay was to advise him to go to Saudi Arabia to learn about Islam. Lindsay's behaviour around this time was mixed at school. He is said to have begun associating with troublemakers and he was also disciplined by the school for handing out leaflets in support of Al-Qaeda. At his local mosque and in Islamic groups around Huddersfield and Dewsbury, he was admired for the speed in which he had achieved fluency in Arabic and memorised long passages of the Quran, showing unusual maturity and seriousness. He began wearing a traditional white throbe, the gown traditionally worn by Muslim men. Shortly after, Lindsay's mother remarried and moved to Cleveland, Ohio in 2002. 
before she left for the US, she found her son a house in the Birkby area of Huddersfield, and it was there that he began a relationship with Samantha Luthwaite, a white British convert to Islam, whom he had met over the internet and subsequently at a Stop the War march in London on the 30th of October 2002. The couple lived in a terraced house, paying the £63 a week rent by claiming housing benefit. He would supplement his income by working occasionally as a carpet fitter, as well as selling mobile phone covers at the local Saturday market. Lindsay and his pregnant wife left Huddersfield and moved to Bradford. He became a regular at the Hamara Youth Centre in Leeds, where it is believed he was befriended by Khan, Tanweer and Hussain. In July 2004, the couple gave birth to their first son, Abdullah, and they moved to the Buckinghamshire town of Aylesbury, close to where Samantha's family were. To his neighbours, he was a respectful and well-mannered young man, who sometimes prayed at the nearby Omar Masjid Mosque. On the surface, there was no links to anything remotely fundamental or extreme. However, I do wonder how many of you are thinking to yourself, I've heard the name Samantha Luthwaite before, but I can't put my finger on why. So, I think that it's now about time to disappear off down a rabbit hole briefly and talk about Samantha, who, if you remember I said earlier in the episode, had not reported her husband missing for seven days after the blast, despite being heavily pregnant. I could probably do a whole show on her, so I will try and keep this information brief. She was born in Banbridge, County Down in Northern Ireland, in December 1983. She was born to Andrew and Elizabeth Luthwaite. Her father was a former British soldier during the time of the Troubles in the country. She was therefore accustomed to acts of war from a very young age. Luthwaite's parents separated in 1994 and friends later reported that she was badly affected by the breakup and sought solace from a Muslim neighbour who she believed had a stronger family network. She came to light though after the blasts due to her willingness to give interviews to the British tabloids. During the first of which she gave the following speech. I totally condemn and am horrified by the atrocities. I am the wife of Jermaine Lindsay and I never predicted or imagined that he was involved in such horrific activities. He was a loving husband and father. I am trying to come to terms with the recent events. My whole world has fallen apart and my thoughts are with the families of the victims of this incomprehensible devastation. In September 2005, she sold her story to The Sun for about £30,000 about how she was the victim and her husband, as a relatively recent convert, had been tricked into his actions by extremists. This act confused many, despite the fact that The Sun's morals as a newspaper are questionable at best, 
the Yorkshire Post subsequently pointed out that, for very good and obvious reasons, there is a law against any criminal profiting from his illegal activities by selling his story to the newspaper. And while the letter of the law has not been broken on this occasion, Miss Luthwaite is not a criminal, but its spirit has clearly been breached. The families of the victims were unconvinced by the sincereness of her story either, with good reason. For extra research, I'm going to direct you to the Netflix series, World's Most Wanted, and especially episode 3. An episode on the White Widow. Better known as Samantha Luthwaite. Following the 7-7 bombings, Luthwaite remarried and moved to Kenya. There, as the documentary will show you, she has strong links to the 2012 attacks on the Jericho Beer Garden in Mombasa. The bar was packed with patrons who had gathered to watch the UEFA European Championships 2012 football match between England and Italy. The grenade killed one person on the spot, whilst two more died due to their injuries, while they were receiving treatment at the Coastal General Hospital. 30 more were injured, including a suspect who was allegedly part of the attackers. A nine-year-old boy. Samantha Luthwaite is believed to be still hidden by the Somalian Al-Shabaab movement. As I think I've bombarded you with enough heavy information today, I just want to tie up a few loose ends today to end the show, before we move on to the final part in a fortnight's time. First thing is, what were the bombs made out of? Expert examination concluded that it appeared as if the bombs were homemade and that the ingredients used were already commercially available and not particularly expensive. Each device appeared to have consisted of around 2 to 5 kilograms of homemade explosive. The first purchase of materials necessary for the production of these devices was subsequently identified as the 31st of March 2005. It was also noted that Lindsay spent hundreds of pounds on perfume in the days leading up to the 7th of July attack. But it's unclear whether this purchase had anything to do with the ingredients of the bomb. But it was definitely an anomaly, bearing in mind that he was on a very low income. In other reports that I have read, it is suspected that Lindsay traded this perfume for bomb-making equipment so that the purchases could not be identified. Experts in one of the subsequent inquests claimed that no great expertise was required to assemble a device of this kind. It was possible to obtain the necessary knowledge from open sources, such as online tutorials, but more likely that the group would have had advice from someone with previous experience given the careful handling required to ensure safety during the bomb-making process and to get the manufacturing process right. Materials consistent with these processes were discovered during a police raid at a Leeds address at Alexander Grove. 
the mixtures would have smelt bad enough to make the room very difficult to work in. The signs were, when the room was forensically analysed, that the bombs were made with the windows open, but the net curtains taped to the walls to avoid being seen. The fumes had killed off the tops of plants just outside the windows. The scientists who studied the mixture stated that it would have had a strong bleaching effect. Both Tamweer and Hussain's families had noticed that their hair had become lighter over the weeks before the bombing. The second obvious thing to question was how was this funded? The answer to this is, despite some groups after the attack trying to claim responsibility for the attack, it appears as though the four men funded the attack entirely themselves. The security services estimated that including the overseas trips for Tamweer, Khan and Hussain, the bomb making equipment, the rent on the Alexander Grove property, the car hire for the 7th of July trip, UK travel including rail fares, and petrol for all of the meetings with the crevice members at the start of this episode, it would not have cost any more than £8,000. Khan appeared to have provided most of the funding. Having been in full-time employment for three years since university, he had a reasonable credit rating. Upon further investigation, it was discovered that he had multiple bank accounts, each with just a small sum deposited in them, multiple credit cards with a £3,000 credit limit, and a £10,000 personal loan. He had two periods of intensive spending activity, firstly in October 2004 and then from March 2005 onwards. As mentioned earlier, Jermaine Lindsay had made a number of purchases of perfume with cheques, which subsequently bounced in the weeks before the 7th of July. Bank investigators visited his house on the day after the bombings. The group also appeared to have visited their desired targets prior to the attacks taking place. On the 28th of June 2005, Khan, Tanweer and Lindsay made the journey from Luton into King's Cross, catching one of the first trains of the morning before travelling together on the underground. They were picked up on CCTV near Baker Street tube station later in the morning and returned to Luton at about lunchtime. Lindsay was found to have a chart noting down the length of time it took between stations which he might have written down during his recce visit. Whatever the motives for the attack, they had been meticulously planned out to the extent that the three underground explosions happened within 50 seconds of each other. Surely, though, no one would try this again. Would they? Still to come in the final part of this case, we'll be hearing about another plot which was foiled by the security services. We'll be looking into the death of Jean-Charles de Menezes. We'll be looking into what happened with the first responders as well as some of the positives that came in the aftermath. So before I close this week's episode, 
like I did last week, I just want to promote a fellow host's podcast. This is Barry from the Extraordinary Stories podcast. Hey, it's Barry. How are you? Let me ask you this. Do you like to hear stories of murder, deceit and unbelievable true crime? If you do, then you want Extraordinary Stories podcast. This girl here will be dead by 6pm. I will blow her head off. You cannot terrorise me anymore. Do you want to hear stories of incredible human survival? Stories of some of the most inspiring people who have ever lived. I think she did what any of us would do in that moment. She played dead. She lay there and she pretended to have died. That was what saved her. If you want stories of sex, death, murder, survival and real human stories told with humour but also respect then you want Extraordinary Stories podcast. Imagine turning up to your own funeral in a wig. (laughs) Listen to Extraordinary Stories podcast told by a Scottish man in a thick Scottish accent. Get it on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere that you listen to podcasts. Okay, goodbye. Let's get it on. Let's do it. Let's get it over. Ladies and gentlemen, there are so many people like me and Barry who produce shows for you on a regular basis for the love of doing it. We don't have the budgets of a big backer and anything spent on the show often isn't covered by the small amount of funds that we receive on a monthly basis, therefore coming out of our own pockets to entertain our dear friends listening, and we do it because we want to. So therefore, please, if you do want to tweet any of your favourite shows, for example, Emma from True Crime Witch, Kira from Murder and More, Sinead from Mens Rea, Mina at True Crime Finland, or many more that I'll be promoting over the coming episodes, please use the hashtag SupportIndieTrueCrime. That's the hashtag SupportIndieTrueCrime. All we are trying to do is get more listeners to our work. So as we've now come to the end of part four, and I hope that you are still learning things about the tragic events of that day that you were not aware of. I've been receiving some amazing feedback from you all so far in this case and I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I've decided that after this case I'm going to do a one-off just to break up the really long stories but more about that in the next episode. Please remember if you've enjoyed the show or want to know more please follow us on Twitter at TrueCrimeFixPod that's at TrueCrimeFixPod on Twitter. Also remember that the podcast has a Patreon page, so please, if you can afford to support the show, please visit www.patreon.com forward slash truecrimefixpodcast. I also have an Instagram account, so search truecrimefix or click on the link in the show notes. 
Also, if you have any suggestions or feedback for the show, please contact me at truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. That's truecrimefixpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, stay safe, look after each other, and live life to the fullest, because you never know who or what might be coming around the next corner. Take care, everyone.